Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Exodus, chapter 2, verses 23 through 3, chapter 3, verse 15. Let us listen now for God's word to us. After a long time, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned under their slavery and cried out. Out of the slavery, their cry for help rose up to God. God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God looked upon the Israelites, and God took notice of them. Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led his flock beyond the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of a bush. He looked, and the bush was blazing, yet it was not consumed. Then Moses said, I must turn aside and look at this great sight and see why the bush is not burned up. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called him, God called to him from out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Come no closer. Remove the sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. He said further, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have observed the misery of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry on account of their taskmasters. Indeed, I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them from the Egyptians and bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the country of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. The cry of the Israelites has now come to me. I have also seen how the Egyptians oppress them. So come, I will send you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? He said, I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that it is I who sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God on this mountain. But Moses said to God, If I come to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your ancestors has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. He said further, Thus you shall say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. God also said to to Moses, Thus you shall say to the Israelites, The Lord, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And this is my title 
for all generations. This is the word of the Lord. So last week, when we left off the story of Moses, he was in a pretty good place, right? We left him in a place of general prosperity and comfort. His mother, you you might remember, had placed him among the reeds on the riverbank in a very carefully constructed basket. And Pharaoh's daughter came and found him. And and then she eventually uh, got Moses' own mother to raise him in her home. And then when Moses got to a certain age, she brought him back to Pharaoh's daughter to live as a part of the royal family. A Hebrew boy raised in the house of Pharaoh. Such fantastic, divine irony. But when we pick up here at the burning bush scene, we've missed quite a bit of action. We, we skip over some pretty important stuff. Young Moses is understandably in a bit of a precarious situation before we see him as the shepherd. He seems to have been keenly aware of the fact that he didn't belong fully in either world, either the world of the Hebrew people or the world of the Egyptians. Now, he seems to to more uh, closely identify with the Hebrew people. Chapter 2, verse 11 says that one day Moses went out to his people. As he is out among the people, he sees their suffering and is moved by it. He witnesses uh, an Egyptian man who is attacking and abusing uh, a Hebrew man, one of his own kinfolk. And he intervenes in the situation and ends up killing the Egyptian and burying his body in the sand to hide his indiscretion. Now Moses thinks he's gotten away with it. He's feeling pretty good about himself. But the next day he goes out again. And this time he sees two Hebrew men fighting with each other. Now again, Moses intervenes, breaks up the fight, and he asks one of them, the one that he perceives to be the aggressor, he says, why do you strike your fellow Hebrews? And the man responds, who made you? a ruler, and judge over us. Do you mean to kill me like you killed the Egyptian? So at this, Moses realizes that he wasn't quite as crafty as he had supposed and finds out that not only does this man know about it, but the news has traveled all the way to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh intends to kill him. So he runs, and he runs far. He runs all the way to the land of Midian, which is on the other side of the Sinai Peninsula and the other side of the Red Sea. In other words, Moses doesn't just get out of Dodge. He gets way out of Dodge. And he eventually settles in this new home, this new place, this new life. Finds a wife, starts a family, but again, never quite at home. No matter where he has been raised his entire life, he has never had a place to truly call home. This is a man who has struggled with this double identity as a Hebrew living in the house of the king of Egypt. And his identity is now even further fractured, now living in a land that is completely foreign to him, being identified by the locals there as an Egyptian rather than a Hebrew. So as we pick up this week with Moses, he is well into this new life as a shepherd. He has gotten married, had children tending his flock, minding his own business. To Moses, at this point in the story, Egypt is nothing but a distant, painful memory, something that is best left unmentioned and ignored, not even thought about or talked about. Moses has no idea what is about to happen to him, what God 
is about to ask of him. He has no idea that he is about to meet, or rather be met, by the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But before we get there, notice what it is that prompts God's interruption of Moses' routine. Our text this morning opens, After a long time, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned under their slavery and cried out. Out of their slavery, their cry for help rose up to God. God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God looked upon the Israelites and took notice of them. So right away, we learn that this God is a God who responds to the cries of his people. This is a God who is concerned with justice. This is not a God who is content to simply sit back and leave his people to their own devices, but is moved by the cry of those who are being oppressed and therefore intervenes in Moses' life to do something about it. It is their groaning that causes God to remember and to act decisively. So it's easy to see why many African-American slave communities in America were so drawn to this text and why they spoke of and imaged people like Harriet Tubman as a new Moses for them. So Moses is out with his flock, not realizing that he has just stumbled upon Mount Horeb, or potentially Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. He finds himself standing on this place that is holy ground. But he has no idea going into it that this is a sacred place. To Moses, it's, it's just another mountain. Now, the narrator of the story has the advantage of hindsight, knowing that Mount Horeb happens to be a place that God often shows up. But to Moses, this was nowhere special, perhaps a place that he had been dozens of times with his flock as he's leading them out into the wilderness. And now, all of a sudden, at this place that he's probably been to many, many times before, he encounters God and is asked to remove his sandals because the place that he stands is holy ground. Now, there's, there's no doubt that the idea of removing his sandals is, is an act of reverence, uh, an act of honor and respect, a ritual act when entering a worship space, when entering a sacred place. But, as you probably also know, in many traditional cultures, people are often expected to take their shoes off before entering a home. So perhaps there at the foot of the mountain of God, Moses, this man who has never found a home, never been truly at home anywhere in his life, has finally found his home. And this, he is now in the presence of the God of his ancestors. And this encounter, this encounter of being at home in the presence of God, will call him back to his people, back to the place that he had once hoped would be his home. And then after that, he will spend the rest of his life trying to lead his people to their new home, though he will never ultimately find it. He never makes it into the promised land. But God promises to be with him wherever he goes. God promises that wherever he may wander, he will be home. The ground will be sacred because God will be with him. God will be there. But again, for Moses, this is nowhere special. He has no reason to suspect that this would be the place that he would encounter God. Like when Jacob just kind of happened to meet God at Bethel. 
Moses happens to meet God here. So what was, so, what, what was, what was, was it that was so special about this place? What was so sacred about it? Nothing, really, except that it is here that Moses pays attention to God's abiding presence. Some ancient Jewish interpreters uh, often wondered how many burning bushes Moses had passed throughout the course of his life as a shepherd in Midian, as he's out keeping his flock day after day. How many times had God tried to speak to Moses and he simply didn't listen, didn't turn his attention toward it? So perhaps the only reason this place is holy and sacred is because this happens to be the place where Moses finally pays attention to the presence of God that has been there all along. The poet Wendell Berry once wrote, there are no unsacred places. There are only sacred places and desecrated places. Another poet, Elizabeth Barrett Browning, ends her poem, Aurora Lee, with a reference to this burning bush story in a very similar vein as Barry, and she says, Earth is crammed with heaven, every common bush a fire with God. But he who sees takes off his shoes, and the rest just sit round and, eat, and pluck blackberries. On this day, perhaps finally, finally Moses saw the world around him for what it truly is, a place that is saturated and overflowing with the presence of God. Most of the time, we don't dare take notice because if we were to pay attention to those burning bushes, we know what it would mean for us. We know what it would mean to pay attention to where God is calling us, to how God is calling us, or to whom God is calling us. God sent Moses down a very difficult path from this place. Judging by his reaction and his many excuses, Egypt was probably the last place Moses wanted to be sent. So also we know somewhere deep inside that if we were to truly pay attention for God as Moses did, we might be called down similarly difficult paths. That we would be called to hear and respond to the cries of those who are suffering. We would realize that we too are being called back into the Egypts of our world, often the last places that we want to go. Truth be told, we are terrified of how God might actually call us. But, fortunately for us, perhaps, we live in a world that is full of noise and distraction. For us, it's, it's actually pretty easy to walk by the bushes that are aflame with the presence of God. Our attention is enraptured by the lights of our iPhones, tablets, the constant chatter of the television, the 24-hour news cycle. One of the great ironies of the world that we live in is that because of the digital revolution, we are constantly connected in some way to something, but that connection very often only serves to further disconnect ourselves from each other and from the world around us. It's estimated that 23% of all car accidents are the result of cell phone use often the result of texting while driving. So that's roughly 1.3 million accidents, many of which are fatal, because we have this compulsive urge, many of us, to, const to remain constantly connected and to see what might be behind that little flashing light on our phones. And even when we're at home, we have the endless noise of the TV to steal our attention. There's this great scene in the movie 
What's Eating Gilbert Grape, where the mother is, a, is sound asleep in the living room with the TV on, and the sound is just blaring. So one of the children walks up and turns off the TV. And as soon as he does, the mother wakes up and begins screaming at him to turn it back on. And then as soon as it comes back on, she's conked out again, back sound asleep. Now it's, it's sad, but it's really not too far from the truth for many of us. In our world of noise and distraction, it is so easy for us to pass the burning bushes that are all around us. It is so easy for us to ignore the presence of God or to drown out God's voice. A few years ago when we lived in St. Augustine, I was uh, doing youth ministry at a Methodist church and also working uh, with Young Life, which is an outreach ministry for middle and high school kids. One year, uh, Young Life in Florida had uh, a silent retreat for all of their staff all around the state, and I got to come along as well. Now, a silent retreat is exactly what it sounds like. A bunch of people together at a camp can't talk. You can't say a word to each other. Nothing at all. Now, for many people, this was kind of a miserable experience, and it drove them completely crazy. But I was in heaven. (laughs) I'm not naturally a a gregarious and outgoing and extroverted person. I'm I'm not exactly the social butterfly. I can be when I need to, but it's, it's not my preference. I tend to be a bit more reserved and introverted, especially in social situations like that. So being with a ton of people that I don't really know without having to make small talk, was like a dream come true. It was very freeing for me. Now, there were some really awkward moments, uh, of course, while you're there, because you're unable to say a word to each other. You're you're sitting around dinner table in silence, just kind of looking at each other, looking at your food, not knowing where to look, awkwardly gesturing to each other, you know, pass the salt, but you can't say pass the salt. You're just trying to, you know, it's a little tricky. But it was, it was really fascinating to see how that silence affected every little thing that we did. We did everything just a little bit slower. There was no need to rush. There were no meetings to get to, no messages to check, no event that we might miss, no news to keep up with. We were able to just be, like the psalmist says, to be still and know. I think the most powerful part of the experience for me was simply noticing this place that was around me in ways that I had never seen before. We were at uh, a camp called Southwind. It's one of the smaller Young Life camps. It's here in Florida um, in Oklahoma in the the Ocala National Forest. I had been to that camp so many times throughout the course of my life. I mean, more times than I could even begin to think about counting. I knew that camp very, very well. It felt like home to me. But... And as much as I love Southwind, as much as I love being there and going there, it's, it's never been the most, uh, let's say, aesthetically impressive place in the world. Nothing wrong with it, but it's just, it was kind of a, a plain thing at that. It's a lot nicer now, actually, but uh, back then it was rather plain. But for some reason, being there in this new context, sitting in silence with nothing to do, just paying attention for the presence of God, the place came alive. I have never seen greener grass in my entire life. Something about sitting still and shutting up changed everything about that place. But the reality, of course, was that nothing about the place had actually changed, right? It was was the same old Southwind that I had been to a thousand times before. It was I who had changed. My vision had changed. I saw the world and this place differently. 
when I finally slowed down for long enough to look for God's presence, to my surprise, I found that God was actually there. Weird, right? I discovered that every common bush in that place was afire with the presence of God. That I found that my feet were on holy ground. But not because God was somehow magically more present in that place, but because I finally had my eyes open, perhaps for the first time ever. So for us, as we leave the comfort and security of this sanctuary and go out into the wilderness of this world, may we go with our eyes open, suspecting that we'll find that earth is indeed crammed with heaven, assuming that every bush that we pass is aflame with the presence of God, calling us to listen and to hear, to hear the cries of those who are suffering in the Egypts of our world, calling us back to our places of fear and discomfort, trusting that the one who revealed himself to Moses as, I am who I am, or I will be who I will be, is also revealing himself to us and also promising to be with us and to go with us. May we be those who see and take off our shoes, no longer being content with our Blackberries or iPhones or whatever it may be. May we go out with our eyes wide open expecting to find God in the ordinary mundane routines that we live in this ordinary mundane world that is ablaze with the presence of God, assuming that the earth that God has made and the places we roam every single day are crammed with heaven. Amen.